Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17 tonight. None of us likes change, but God has clearly revealed in his word that if we're going to be a growing Christian, if we're going to be a productive member of the body of Christ, if we're going to make an impact and influence the world of unbelievers around us, we've got to be willing to change and cooperate with the God who wants to bring about change in our life. We cannot remain the same. We have to be different. Peter even says it this way, we are the peculiar people of God. And we need to be okay with being different from those around us, sometimes even different from other Christians because if they're not choosing to grow, if they're not choosing to cooperate with what God wants to do in their life, then certainly our life is going to look different. It's going to be distinct. And that's what Paul wanted to get across to the Ephesians in the passage we're going to look at tonight because remember what he's building upon here. He has told us that God wants us to be part of something much bigger than ourselves. We are now part of the body of Christ. And that the goal of, of being part of this body is that we grow together and we grow up into Christ and all that God created us and saved us to be. Well, in order to do that, that means we've got to be willing to change. We've got to be willing for God to transform us continually and for us to be distinct from what we used to be. Either before we were saved or even as we continue to grow in our salvation that that every day that goes by, every week that goes by, every month that goes by, every year that goes by, that we look a little different. It's not going to be all at once, obviously. It's going to be progressive. But it is going to be continuous. And Paul is simply saying to the Ephesians, if we're going to be part of this body that we talked about last week, that God is building, where each one does its part so that the body grows in love, Paul says, then you've got to, Put away the behavior and the lifestyle that you used to live before you became a Christian and even as you were maybe growing up in Christ and you got to continue to let God build, you know, these changes into your life and again, to, to work on your hearts and to work on your minds and to continue to renovate the way you think and the way you feel and what your priorities and passions are. So, would you please follow along with me as I read this passage tonight and then I just have a few comments about what it means to be living a God-centered life, because I think that's what Paul's talking about here, living a God-centered life. So notice, we pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 4. So I say this, Paul says to the Ephesians, and insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do. That, that's simply a way of saying those that don't know God, those that have no thought for God, that give no regard to God. They do so in the futility of their thinking. We'll come back to what that means in just a moment. Notice how he describes those without God. Not only are they futile in their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Here in just verse 17 and 18, you've seen the word thinking and you've seen the word heart because that's where God is concentrating his change, not only from being an unbeliever to a believer, but even after we are saved. Because they are callous, 
They have given themselves over to indecency for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But notice what Paul says in verse 20, but you did not learn about Christ like this. If indeed you heard about him and were taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. You were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man or the old nature who is being corrupted in accordance with deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man who has been created in God's image in righteousness and holiness that comes from truth. In a sense, Paul is saying to the Ephesians, you realize after you became a Christian, God wants to start to dress you differently. Not physically, but spiritually. You and I have a new wardrobe, if you will, to put on. And every day, God wants to add to that wardrobe and to build up our wardrobe so that when we go out into the world and when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're wearing, in a sense, the garments of God rather than the garments of the old life and the garments of the world. Now, as I read and studied this, again, I came to the conclusion that what Paul's talking about here is a God-centered life, a God-centered life. And as God moved me through this passage, there, there were some things that I saw that really sort of uh, summarizes what a God-centered life looks like. What are some characteristics or evidences of a God-centered life? And I want you to note the first one, actually, in verse 17, as Paul is sort of introducing this section and describing it, I want you to notice something. Notice his authority. Because that's one of the evidences and garments of a God-centered life is authority. Notice what Paul says. He says, so I say this and insist in the Lord that you no longer live as unbelievers, as those who don't know God. How can Paul be so authoritative? How can he insist on something? Well, notice, because it's in the Lord. Paul's saying, I'm not really saying this. God is saying this through me. I'm simply his spokesperson, and I know because of my fellowship with God and my worship of God and my God-centered life that what I am doing and I'm saying right now carries all the authority of God behind it. I am teaching you with authority, you see. I am saying these things with confidence and with authority. When you and I live a God-centered life, we will carry with us authority. We will carry with us a confidence that only comes when we center our lives in God. We will have a surety. We will have a clarity. Think about the description of Jesus' teaching ministry while he was here on earth from the Gospels. What was one of the things that set Jesus' teaching ministry apart from the other religious leaders of Jesus' day? What did they say about him? They say, he teaches as one who has authority. It's not that the religious leaders of Israel didn't know the facts of the Old Testament. 
But there was something different, not in maybe what Jesus was saying, but in the way he was saying it. When he got up to quote the scriptures, when he got up to teach the scriptures, to expound the scriptures, to explain the scriptures, he taught as one who had authority. Why? Because he knew for sure that what he was teaching was coming from God because obviously he was God himself. But he also knew at that moment as, you know, living under the leading of the Holy Spirit and looking to the will of his Father, that he was doing exactly what the Holy Spirit was also leading him to do and what was his Father's will at that time. So it carried authority. When you and I live a God-centered life, there will be an authority to what we say, what we do. There will be a clarity. There will be a surety. There will be a confidence because we know we're immersed in God. And even if everybody else around us doesn't like it, doesn't agree with it, doesn't go for it, whatever, that, that we are standing sure inside of, of our God-centered life and, and we are going to carry out what God is calling us to do, inviting us to do, leading us to do, not maybe because people necessarily want to hear it <laughs> but sometimes we need to share with others just as others need to share with us and God does with us what we need to hear so there's authority here in a God-centered life a God-centered life is also all-encompassing it's an all-encompassing life there is no part of our life that is not touched by God the very word live here in verse 17, if you study that word, it speaks about the whole of life. That you no longer live in any part of your life is what Paul is saying to the Ephesians and to us as an unbeliever would. No part, you see. The whole of life, everything is encompassed when we live a God-centered life. Because again, even by when you speak it out, a God-centered life means that it's not compartmentalized. I don't have a secular part of my life and then a spiritual part of my life. It's all spiritual. It's all affected and affected by my relationship and my fellowship with God. There is no part of my life that God does not touch, you see. When, when, when God came into our life, he didn't just come in to be our Savior. He came in to be our Lord. And that means that we surrender all of our life to him. That is living a God-centered life. Paul invited the Romans to that kind of life when he says, I beseech you by the mercies of God in Romans 12 that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, and pleasing to God. A living sacrifice. That's a God-centered life. A God-centered life is also, as we see here, distinctive. He says, I insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do. There should be a difference in our lifestyle compared to those that do not know God. We cannot continue to live the way unbelievers live. And first of all, build each other up in the body 
and, and enable each other to grow and do our part. God cannot use us as effectively if we're not living distinct from the world, which then, circle back, that also means that we can't reach the world if we're like them. The only way we reach the world is by actually being different from them. Yet in, in many ways today, Christians and even churches have adopted worldly devices to try to reach people in the world and bring them to Christ. And God's word clearly teaches the only effective way to actually reach somebody who's in the world who is futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God is by being different, not by being the same. See, they need to see the reality and the transformation and the difference that God is making in our life. Not that we're like them, not that we think like them, that we do like them and all of that, but that there is a distinct difference in the way we lived and the way we used to live before we came to Christ. And even as I said, every day that goes by, every week, every month, every year, hopefully there are differences, there are continual changes, there's progressive transformation in our hearts and in our minds from the way it used to be even as a young Christian or then as a Christian who's been a Christian for 10 years and it should look different after 15 years and then after 20 and, and there should always be throughout our lifetime on earth that kind of change. I want to go back as Paulo describes those apart from God because he gives us great insight here of why even God, after we are saved, wants to continue to work on our hearts and minds. First of all, he says that those without God are futile in their thinking. What does that mean? It means there's an aimlessness to their life due to lacking meaningful purpose. I'll repeat that because I didn't do a very good job the first time. The word futility here means an aimlessness to their life due to lacking meaningful purpose. And notice where that's coming from, where that starts, in the mind. And you and I, it doesn't take long for us to think about the world that we live in and to think that one of the problems with the world today, with people today, is an aimlessness. They, they don't wake up every day as we should as Christians with meaningful purpose on our minds. That every day, because we are a child of God, we actually do have meaningful purpose every day. Every day we understand that we affect eternity every day. Whether it's, again, through our own fellowship with God and worship of God and our own spiritual growth or whether God is using us that day to positively impact somebody else. But eternity is and can be affected every day by a child of God. Therefore, every day has meaningful purpose. To those that don't know God, they don't even know why they're here. Why was I born? Why am I on earth? And, and so sad and tragic that they can spend so many years of their lives on earth, if not all their lives, 
trying to go around, trying to find something to really give them meaningful purpose, something that is eternal, not just for the here and now, that, that their purpose is simply wrapped up in worldly things that one day is not going to really mean much and is going to be forgotten. Even the greatest achievements of man, if it's not centered in God, isn't remembered after too long a period of time. So that's futile in their thinking. But notice he goes on to say they live in darkness. That's why God calls us to be light. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But here's what I want you to notice. He goes on to also say that they are ignorant, but it's not due to their lack of knowledge or their lack of exposure to God. Notice what their ignorance is due to, verse 18, the hardness of their hearts. Think about Pharaoh here, right? All the things that Pharaoh was exposed to, all the miracles, all the plagues, if you will, but all the miracles of God. And yet it kept saying, but he hardened his heart and would not let God's people go. It wasn't that Pharaoh was ignorant of God or of God's ability or of what God could do. His heart was hard. And that's where many unbelievers are. And that's where God does not want any of his children to stay either. You see, God does not want any of his children to, to have a calloused, hardened heart so that it's not pliable in God's hands, so that God can't move it, so that God can't touch it, so that God can't work on it. And that's why even at the beginning tonight, you know, God impressed upon me that as a Christian, I should always have a purposeful mind and a pliable heart. And that God is always continually working on making sure I have a purposeful mind, purposeful thinking, and I have a pliable heart. Because throughout our Christian life, our thinking can start to get off track and our hearts can start to become hard. And we have to be careful that in order to keep living a God-centered life that we don't allow that to happen. And that's why... I wanted to just remind all of us, let's let our worship time be a time where God even then can, can start work on maybe our thoughts and our thinking and what we're thinking and what we're thinking about and how we're, our mindset is and how our mental outlook is. And, and, and maybe, maybe there's a heart here tonight that God needs to soften up a little bit. Maybe it's become hardened in a situation. Maybe it's become hardened towards a certain person. Maybe it's become hardened towards God or toward what God wants to do or is inviting us to do or calling us to do. I don't know, but, but I know this. I know God wants tonight to work on minds and he wants to work on our hearts. Because the tragedy of, of a person without God is their thinking is futile and their hearts are hard, you see. But notice what he says in verse 20. Another characteristic of a God-centered light is not only that there is authority, not only that it is all-encompassing, 
Not only that it is distinctive, but that we are teachable and that we are humble. Because notice he says, you did not learn about Christ like this. And notice too, how Christ is at the center of all of this. You see? It always takes us back to Jesus, being more like Jesus. Whatever our worship is, whatever we are being taught or whatever we are learning, if it's not helping us to be more like Jesus, if it's not taking us to Jesus, because notice here in this verse alone, or actually verse 20 and 21, that Jesus is, he's the context of truth, he's the content of truth, and he's the conveyor of truth. It's all centered in Jesus. And what Paul is describing to the Ephesians is someone who is willing to humble themselves and be teachable always and continue to, notice, learn about Christ and to hear about Christ and to be taught in him because the truth is certainly in Jesus. And in fact, at the end of verse 24, he talks about this righteousness and holiness that God wants to build into our lives. And where does it come from? Truth. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free to become who God created us to be and who he saved us to be. But you and I have to be humble and teachable and always willing to sit underneath of him and, and submit and learn and, and grow and know that we never get to a place where we, we don't quit growing and we don't quit learning and we don't quit becoming more and more like Jesus. Because again, as we're going to say in just a minute, another characteristic of a God-centered life is it's transformative. It's always about transformation. It's always about change. That's why he says in verse 22, you were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man or the old nature, the old way of doing things. And verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Notice again, it goes back to our thinking. Did you notice in this passage how important our minds are to our spiritual life? As I've said before, we can have a lot of stinking thinking up there. Whether it's things that we say to ourselves, things we think, things that others tell us that we, you know. And that's why it's so important that we think the thoughts of God and that we truly do bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Because God, throughout our Christian life, notice verse 23, wants to renew us in the spirit of our mind. The word renewed simply means to renovate or be transformed. God wants to transform our way of thinking. God wants to renovate our mind. Why does God need to do this even after we're saved? Well, again, because sanctification, that big word that the Bible uses, becoming more like Jesus Christ every day, it isn't a one-and-done thing. It, it's progressive throughout our Christian life. It's laying aside one thing and picking up and putting on another. Again, it's that wardrobe exchange. I'm laying aside 
old ways of doing things or old ways of thinking, and I'm picking up new ways and putting on new things. But it starts in our hearts and our minds by having pliable hearts and by having, in a sense, a, a humble mind that is willing to, to learn and be taught the ways of God. Notice in verse 24, this new man has been created in God's image. And this is why God has to continue to work on us because the book of Genesis teaches us that physically, when God created man and woman in the garden, he created us in the image of God. But then the Bible goes on to tell us that when sin came into the world, through Adam, that the image of God was marred. It wasn't near as clear as it used to be before sin. Sin, in a sense, sort of blocks being able to reflect God as a human being. That process starts anew when we become a new creation in Christ. And what God then is doing throughout our Christian life is literally getting us back as a human being to what he intended all along, which was to be image bearers, to be able to clearly reflect who God is. But for us, even as Christians, that's a lifetime process. Where we are laying aside the old, and where we are putting on the new. So not only is a God-centered life transformative, but again, based upon verse 24, a God-centered life is also reflective, meaning that when you and I live a God-centered life, we will more and more and more reflect who God really is. People will see God more clearly and more evidently in us as we center our lives in God. There are some Christians, it's like, I don't see God in their lives. <laughs> but there are other Christians that the more we grow and the more we live our lives centered in God, people can see God in us. And that's what it's all about. Because when you and I begin to live that way as Christians, guess what then? Circle back to the earlier passage of last week then we become a, a vibrant participant and part of the body of Christ that God can use to build up other Christians and to grow them. And God can use our life as one who clearly reflects him to be able to impact and influence those that don't know God. That our life is so distinct that we create a thirst we, we literally create a curiosity in those that don't know God because of the way we live that they begin to sort of want or desire some of what we have and they even get to the place, as Peter said, where we set apart Christ as Lord and we are ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us the reason of the hope that is in us. Because we're different. 
Because when everybody else in the world is living aimlessly, getting up every day without any real meaningful and eternal purpose to, our lot, to their lives, you and I, as those who center our lives in God, can live just the opposite. That instead of living aimlessly, we actually wake up every day with great purpose. Because we know why we're here, what we are to be focused on, what we are to be doing, and that God gives us a mission, an assignment, something, and invites us to be a part of it that we can immerse ourselves in while we're here. Always knowing that it has nothing to do necessarily with our occupation or what we do for a living, but everything to do with is our life just simply centered in God because God will use our life no matter what if it's centered in Him in whatever, you know, whatever people we meet, whoever we're around, whatever environment we're in, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where we live, where we work, where we go to school. If our life is centered in God, God can and will use our life, you see. But I want to go back to one other point as we wrap this passage up tonight. By the way, God changed my mind this week about this message tonight because I was actually going to teach from 417 through 432 and God said, no, that's too much. I want you to quit at verse 24. We'll pick it up in verse 25 next week. But I want to go back to something very important too about living a God-centered life that you and I need to be reminded of and, and that's found in verse 22 and then in verse 24. Notice it's not just laying aside the old man, but it's also putting on the new man. Uh, a couple things. First of all, too, did you notice God gives us a choice? God gives us a choice, which is why some Christians are living God-centered lives and some Christians are choosing not to because it's our choice that God gives us even after we become a child of God of whether we lay aside the old stuff, the old way of thinking, the old ways of doing, the way the world operates, the way the world looks at things, their perspective, what they're involved with, what they're immersed in, and literally putting on the things of God. That's up to us. God gives us that choice. But the thing I want us to notice is this. And the Bible talks about this other places. I'll give you an ex a biblical example. Our, the way God designed us, body, soul, and spirit, our spirit that God gave us and created us with abhors a vacuum. So that means if I lay aside something, that I should be laying aside. It's part of the old life, but I don't put on the new. I, I don't bring in then to my life what God wants. Then guess what? Either the old will come back around or actually more old stuff will come in and flood in because I have not filled that void. I have not filled that vacuum. It's not enough to lay aside I also have to, uh, in, in reference to that, be putting on what God is leading me to put on 
in place of what I'm getting rid of. Let me give you an example of that, but a totally different context. If you remember the story where Jesus is talking about a man who was possessed by a demon, and Jesus was trying to warn his followers, he said, here's, here's the issue with just getting rid of the demon. If we get rid of the demonic influence in that man's life, but that demonic influence is not replaced with something of God, then you know what Jesus said? Then twice as many demons will flood back into that man's life and actually his life after he got rid of the demon in the first place will actually be much worse than it even was before because the vacuum was not filled. Can I say that that's something that we as Christians have to be aware of? Because especially in our day and age, <laughs> we can have some vacuums in our life that we've even gotten rid of something, but we haven't filled it up with something of God. And what ends up in time flooding back in is not automatically... <laughs> something of God, but something from the flesh, something from the old life. You've got to be more intentional. I mean, you, meaning all of us as Christians, we've got to be much more intentional about when we lay aside something, we're putting on something of God. Because that doesn't come natural to the natural man, to the flesh. That is only brought about through the power, enablement, and the Spirit of God. You see. But Paul wants to bring the Ephesians to this place. Because if you remember a little bit of the background of Ephesus, Ephesus was a place of great idolatry and great immorality. And when Christians were saved out of such a pagan environment, there was always that pull to act like those around them even though they weren't Christians. And there was always that pressure coming against the Ephesians to be like the world as they were in the world. But God calls us to center our lives so much in him that we can be in the world, but we don't live like the world that through a God-centered life, we live differently than we used to and we live differently than those around us. So that that distinctive lifestyle, that God-centered lifestyle, not only is an encouragement and a strength to our fellow believers and to our church, but it is also a life that can make a greater impact and a greater influence on those who are futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, who are ignorant, but only because of the hardness of their hearts. Could we close in prayer? God, I just pray tonight, as we've assembled here as your people, that, God, we are giving you over our minds and our hearts. 
Because God, we understand that they continually need to be worked on by you. That your spirit needs to continually renovate our minds. Renovate our way of thinking, our outlook, our mindset, our perspective. Because so much, Lord, of getting off track spiritually starts in our mind and what we think about, and what we allow to influence our thinking. And so tonight, God, I just pray that if there's somebody here tonight, God, and they need a change of mind, they need a new way of thinking, God, that they will be encouraged that you're the one that can truly bring that transformation about. You're the only one, God, that can change the way we think as human beings. You're the only one that has the power to renovate our minds and totally redo the way we used to think. So we give you, God, our minds tonight. But God, we also want to give you our hearts tonight. And we have seen once again from your word, God, that human beings... We can get to a place where our heart, through, through circumstances, through others and what others have done to us or what we have done or whatever, God, and all of that, that, God, our, our hearts can get to a bad place. Our hearts can become calloused and insensitive and hard to where, Lord, not only can you not penetrate them because as you try to Use your word and use your spirit, God. We, we put up such a shell around our heart that we do not permit you, God, to get in and do what you want to do. We don't even let others in because there's a shell around our heart. And we even may think that well, we're protecting our heart by putting up that shell, but God, when we do that, sometimes we're also shutting you out. And so, God, I pray tonight that if there's any here whose heart is beginning to become hardened in something, towards something, towards someone else, maybe even towards you, God, that they would give you that heart. That they would break that shell. That they would permit you to come in and once again be able to put your loving, tender, gentle hands around their heart and begin to get it beating for you again. God, we thank you for this precious time that we have on Wednesday nights. Lord, there's something extra special about Wednesdays. Sundays are great in their own way. But there's something very precious, God, about our Wednesday nights when there's just a few of us here. And yet we know that you're here just as much on Wednesdays as you are on Sundays. So God, I just pray tonight that as we have worshipped you tonight, 
as we have immersed ourselves in your word tonight, that God, we will simply give you our minds and our hearts, that we will allow you, God, to continue to do what you want to do in and through us, God, so that we can be used to our maximum efficiency, God, through you. Would you take us home tonight, God, and would you begin to get us energized and excited and expecting even about coming back together on Sunday, God? Because I know that through our worship on Sunday and through your word on Sunday, you want to do something very special here. So Lord, help us to be a part of that. God, thank you for your presence here tonight. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.